0: Episode 45: The End of the Merovingian Dynasty. For roughly 120 years, from the ascension of Clovis I to Dagobert, the scions of the House of Merovech were the undisputed rulers of the Franks. The long-haired kings controlled incredible wealth, numerous holy places, and were accomplished generals. For a long time, it seemed the only people who could weaken the Merovingians were themselves. And so they did, in numerous civil wars which racked the country. Despite his moniker, the Great, Clothar II did not have nearly as much power as his forebears, while his son Dagobert had even less. When Dagobert died in 639, it was clear to all that the mayors of the palace and select circles of powerful nobles dominated the country. Dagobert's two sons were only children. Sigebert III was nine when he became king of Austrasia, while his brother, Clovis II, was six. Intrigue, war, disease, and pure happenstance meant that many of Dagobert's descendants came to power as children and were under the sway of their nobles. Despite their weakness, the Merovingians remained kings of Francia for the next hundred years. The mayors of the palace needed kings to approve their edicts and give them legitimacy as they struggled against rivals, and so they used these children as pawns in their power game. After Dagobert's death, the Pippinids became the dominant force in Frankish politics, and coalitions of nobles united against them, often while propping up their own rival Merovingians to legitimize their movement. So what did the kings do during this period? Older historians blasted them as rois do-nothing kings, who were the helpless puppets of greater forces. After I tell the story of Theuderic IV or Childric III, we can look back on the Merovingians as a whole, but suffice it to say, the claim that they were nothing more than hyper-corrupt, incompetent figureheads after Dagobert is widely overblown. These kings were often children, and inherited a hostile political environment, thus their relative weakness is understandable. Moreover, some actually made important decisions and vied with nobles for authority. But momentum was against them. In 630, one of Dagobert's concubines gave birth to a healthy boy. The king understood that his nobles were the greatest threat to his son and knew he needed the church's support. Fortunately, the Frank Amandus was revered for raising a man from the dead founding monasteries, and evangelizing to pagans. Unfortunately, Dagobert had him exiled for trying to make him dismiss his concubines. In what must have been an awkward series of correspondence, Dagobert asked Amandus to return and baptize his son. The priest, who would eventually become Saint Amand, agreed, returned to Francia, and even silenced a storm while doing so. Amandus baptized the young boy as Sigebert III. But fate makes fools of even the most powerful. While Dagobert feared his nobles might undermine his son, instead, in 634, the Austrasian nobility, led by Pippin of Landen, demanded Sigebert III be made their king. Dagobert was reeling from military defeats by the Slavs and acquiesced to the Pippinids' demands of an independent Austrasia. But his plans were thwarted when that same year Clovis II was born, and Dagobert announced the young boy would inherit Neustria and Burgundy, save Marseille, Poitiers, and a handful of important cities, which Sigebert would control. On the 19th of January, 639, Dagobert died and his children inherited Francia. Between 639 to 691, Francia was divided into two kingdoms. Austrasia and Newestria Burgundy. Even as fate made a fool of Dagobert, it did the same to Pepin. Since Francia was divided in two, the Thuringians realized it was weak and their leader, Duke Rodolph, declared himself king of Thuringia. Pepin's son and successor, Grimwald, rallied Austrasia, put the nine-year-old king on a horse, and marched north. The Austrasians were initially successful as they massacred a Thuringian force, and in response, Radolf called a levy, held up in a stockade on a hill above a bank, and prepared for a siege. Grimwald began the siege, but then realized not all of his magnates were loyal to Sigebert and to the house of Pepin of Landen, which they viewed as becoming too powerful. Grimwald tried to overwhelm Radoff quickly with those forces loyal to him, as there was a significant contingent that held back. As such, Grimwald probably wanted a quick victory to secure the booty he needed to bribe his reluctant nobles. Grimwald's loyalists broke through the gates, but Radoff understood that not all of the Austrasians were willing to fight so far from home, and all he had to do was hold. Radolf's forces counterattacked and surrounded Grimwald's. The Thuringians routed the invasion, and Grimwald had to get permission from Radolf to leave. This event scarred the young Sigebert, who wept in his saddle as he watched the slaughter. The boy king spent the rest of his rule serving God. He became a student of St. Cunibert and patronized churches, hospitals, and monasteries, while his mayor of the palace oversaw political affairs. What happens next is still debated by historians as sources vary. What we do know is that around 656 Sigebert died and Grimwald tried to make his son the new king, who is known to history as Childebert the Adopted. What's debated is just how Grimwald chose to do this. One possibility is that Grimwald had Sigebert's son, the future Dagobert II, tonsured and sent to a monastery in Ireland, and put his own son in power. According to this version, Grimwald was caught, brought before the Newestrian king Clovis II, and killed in Paris. Another version of the story is that Dagobert II had not been born at the time of Sigebert's death, and so Childebert the Adopted was allowed to rule for a time and even recognized as king by the Newestrians, before he was eventually overthrown by a coalition of nobles who feared the Pippinids' power. Still another narrative holds that the Newestrians exiled Dagobert II, giving Grimoald the chance he needed to seize power. While we don't know exactly what happened, what we do know is that for a brief period, Austrasia's king was a Pippinid rather than a Merovingian. The fall of Grimoald's son Childebert the adopted meant that Brunda and Austrasians who opposed the Pippinids put a Merovingian on the throne, temporarily weakening the Pippinids. But this royal replacement did more harm to the Merovingians than the Pippinids, who were powerful due to their wealth, landholding, and Arnulf and Gertrudis' place as saints with their own cults. These two cults provided a sacred legitimization of the Pippinid line in contrast to the Merovingian royal cult. This coup set a precedent that the Merovingians could be replaced, something which the Pippinids would try again successfully in 80 years. In the meantime, the Pippinids lost control of Austrasia, while a Duke Wolfewald became the new mayor of the palace. While the Pippinids in Austrasia ruled through the child king Sigebert, there was open war between nobles in Burgundy under Clovis II. Clovis was still a minor, and his powerful mother Nanthild ruled as queen regent until she was poisoned in 642, and the child king came into the control of the mayor of the palace, who had almost certainly ordered his mother's assassination as a means of consolidating power. However, the mayor... Fleochad did not control Burgundy outright. Burgundy was more Romanized than Neustria and Austrasia and maintained the position of a patrician, a powerful military leader. By 643, Fleochad wanted to establish his supremacy over the patrician Willibad. Fleochad had Willabad condemned, and with the young Clovis under his watchful gaze, he controlled the legitimate powers of the state. But Willabad wasn't going down without a fight, and he assembled his forces at Autun, where he was defeated. Then, according to the Chronicle of Fredegar, God struck the wicked Fleochad with a fever, and he died eleven days later. Fleochad was replaced by Radobertus, who ruled as mayor of the palace of an independent Burgundy until 662, when Ebruin united the positions of mayor of the palace in Neustria and Burgundy. When Ebruin ascended to the position of mayor of the palace of the United Kingdoms of Neustria and Burgundy, he faced violent opposition from Austrasia and nobles within his kingdom. Francia was mostly united ethnically and linguistically, but power was divided between noble households, and when one became too powerful, other nobles formed coalitions against them. This had already happened to the Pippinids in Austrasia, and now Ebruin had to face the same problem in Neustria, burgundy In 657, Clovis died and Grimwald's son Childebert the Adopted became Childebert the Executed. The legitimate heir to the thrones, Clothar III, was five years old, and due to his young age, he was recognized as the figurehead ruler of all of Francia. Like the previous Clothars, he had united all of Francia under one king, but unlike his namesakes, he held no real power outside of his playpen. His mother, Baldachildis tried to exercise power as queen regent by appointing bishops loyal to her cause and removing those who opposed her. According to one biased account, she had nine bishops assassinated, which would be impressive even for a Frankish queen. By 665, the nobles forced her into retirement at Chell Monastery, where she lived with possibly less murdery sisters. The Austrasians were accustomed to self-rule and feared that a single king under Ebruin's control would lead to their annexation. Thus, in 662, Duke Wolfwald chose his own prebubescent monarch and placed the nine-year-old Childric II on the throne. In 673, Clothar III died, and Ebruin raised his younger brother Theuderic III to the throne. The Neustrian burgundian aristocracy had enough of Ebruin's rule, and supported Childeric as their figurehead. After a brief conflict, Ebruin was defeated and exiled to the monastery at Luxeuil in Burgundy, while Theuderic was sent to Saint-Denis, where they were supposed to live out the rest of their days in prayer, quiet contemplation, and maintain their distance from the murderous nuns. With Ebruin out of power, you are probably wondering, who ruled Francia? Well, shockingly, the king did. Childeric II was 20 years old and could legally rule in his own right, unlike his recent predecessors. Moreover, he was king of all of Francia and aimed to be more than just a puppet for conniving nobles. Unfortunately for him, Childeric made some disastrous decisions. First, he appointed the mayor of the palace of Austrasia, Duke Wolfewald, to be mayor of the palace over a united Francia. This outraged the nobles in Neustria and Burgundy, since they balked at a foreigner ruling over them, and the aristocrats across Francia feared the duke's power. Childeric's second mistake occurred because of an incestuous marriage. Shortly after becoming king of Francia, he decided he would marry his cousin. Leodegar, bishop of Atun, protested the marriage, and Childeric had him exiled to a monastery. Now, exiling a bishop wasn't the worst thing a Merovingian king had ever done. In fact, it probably wouldn't even crack the top ten, all of which were committed by one of the Clothars. Probably not the baby Clothar III, though. No, what made the banishment so bad was where Childeric exiled him to. Leodegar was sent to Luxoi, where he reunited with the recently tonsured Ebruin. Moreover, Merovingian monasteries were in close contact with noble patrons, and so this holy refuge for religious men became Francia's conspiratorial headquarters. Ebruin and Leodegar coordinated with other nobles and ordered Childeric's assassination between reciting hymns. In 675, Childeric was out hunting when he, his wife, and five year old son were murdered. He had only been king for two years. When news arrived of the successful assassination, Ebruin and Leodegar immediately ended their friendship and each rode from Luxeuil in different directions. Ebruin murdered Leoducius, the mayor of the palace of Neustria, and replaced him. He then supported a possible fake Merovingian named Clovis as the next king, while Leodogar supported Theodoric III. Ebruin needed a monarch in order to legally issue decrees and to raise an army, but once he took control of the treasury and had a strong force, he dismissed Clovis, who disappears from the record, and supported Theoderic III. Ebruin quickly consolidated power and enacted revenge against Leodegar when he had the bishop's eyes removed and his tongue cut out. A few years later, his vengeance rekindled and he beheaded the old ex-bishop and the man with whom he had shared prayers and assassination plots. Now the Austrasians were in a bind. Ebruin was back in power and had his own Merovingian monarch to rubber stamp whatever he put in front of him. If only the Austrasians could find their own Merovingian king. But where? Well, remember how I mentioned the Pippinids exiled Dagobert II to a monastery in Ireland as part of a failed coup? When news of Childeric's death arrived, Dagobert and his supporters left the monastery and returned to Austrasia, and he was declared king. For the next four years, Ebruin and his puppet Theuderic warred for supremacy against Duke Wolfewald and his supporter Pippin II and the recently returned Dagobert II. Pippin II raised a massive army and met Ebruin at Bois du Fay on the border near Soissons, where he was decisively defeated. Yet again, the Pippinids were stymied in their quest for power, and Ebruin looked as if he would unite all of Francia but then the old mayor of the palace was assassinated, almost certainly by someone working for Pippin II. Around the same time, Dagobert II was assassinated and Duke Wolfewald died, though by natural causes, battle, assassination, or otherwise, we don't know. After so much bloodshed, Francia had enough of war, at least for a time. Wariton, the new mayor of the palace of neustria Burgundy, made peace with Pippin II, the new mayor of the palace of Austrasia. Theodoric III became the figurehead king of all of Francia, as would his successors, but even though Francia had one king, it was still divided between aristocratic factions. At this point, it's worth asking, why didn't Theodoric rule in his own right? He was an adult and king of all of Francia, while the mayors of the palace ruled over separate realms. Surely being a king meant something, right? Theuderic did have some powers. Edicts needed his approval, and he was a symbol that people could rally around. But these were largely ceremonial. By 680, the Merovingians lost control of their direct levers of power. First, Theuderic was probably not the richest person in Francia, as the mayors of the palace held large swaths of important land. Second, without money, he couldn't afford an army personally loyal to him, while the mayors could. Third, aristocrats now dominated court, patronized artists, educators, and scholars. Fourth, and connected to this, the nobles were far better connected than the king. From Clovis I to Dagobert I— Kings were the center of Francia's aristocracy, and all-important people orbited around them looking for patronage or support. Now, the mayors of the palace held that position. The Merovingian house had been decimated, and aristocrats regularly exiled, tonsured, or even executed those who opposed them, while their own families grew in size and took up important positions. Fifth, The nobility controlled the instruments of government and directly administered the country. Sixth, the mayors of the palace had reputations as military commanders, while the Merovingians had virtually no successful military experience after Dagobert I died. Seventh, and finally, the Merovingians literally forgot how to rule. After Dagobert I, the Merovingian monarchs were mostly child kings who were never put in positions of any real authority, and so they lost the ability to command respect, inspire people, dictate orders, or otherwise impose their will upon people. For all these reasons, Theuderic couldn't rule Francia even if he wanted to, and he did want to. The Uteric dreamed of being more than a mere figurehead, and would pin his destiny to military success against the rising Pippinids. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com French FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. When Wharton died in 686, Berthar became the new mayor of the palace of Neustria, Burgundy. An ambitious noble, Berthar dreamed of uniting Francia under his rule and invaded Austrasia. King Theodoric marched with Berthar as the 25-year-old wanted to be a strong king and knew the only way to do so was to prove himself in battle. In 687, Berthar and King Theuderic III met Pippin II's forces at the Battle of Tetri and was decisively defeated. Berthar was removed from power and Pippin forced Theuderic to recognize him as the mayor of the palace of all three kingdoms and even took up the title Dux et Princeps Francorum, Duke and Princeps of the Franks. Berthar succeeded in uniting Francia under one true ruler it just happened to be his rival, who cowed Theodoric back into his role as a ceremonial figurehead. Theodoric was the last Merovingian to attempt ruling in his own right, and all his successors were pure figureheads under the power of Pippin and his descendants. Meanwhile, Pippin consolidated his power over Neustria. His son Drogo married Berthar's widow thus absorbing the rival household of Arkenewald and Ebruin. Pippin II took over the Okenawald family's patronage of monasteries and thus became a powerful church patron. Through these, they acquired bishops loyal to them in positions of power. Pippin, or rather his subordinates, masterfully turned the court against his enemies, redistributing land through legal disputes. By the time of his death, Pippin's house eclipsed any other, and their rule over Francia was virtually undisputed. According to the Annals of Metz, Pippin even appointed Theodoric's successor upon his death in 691. Clovis IV became the next figurehead king at the age of 14 and died within three years due to illness when Pippin uplifted another figurehead, Childebert III. Childebert was another puppet, but he did try to exercise some autonomy and occasionally ruled against the Pippinids in legal disputes, though this didn't weaken their grasp on power. In 711, Childebert died and was replaced. In 711, Childebert died and was replaced by Dagobert III. At this point, Pippin was an old man, born in 635, He had lived under the reign of ten different kings, even more if we count claimants to the throne. In 714, at the age of 79, Pippin announced his son Grimwald II would succeed him. Pippin sent for his son, but on the way to Mez, he was assassinated at the Basilica of Saint-Lambert at Liège. On the 16th of December, Pippin II died without leaving an heir. The Pippinids followed in the footsteps of the Merovingians, and when their patriarch died, a succession crisis broke out over who would rule Francia. The Pippinids divided into three main camps. The first and most powerful camp centered around Theodowald, the son of Grimoald II, and therefore rightful heir to the throne. Theodewald was a minor, and therefore not up to the task of ruling, which may have meant he was even more popular since he could be controlled. The second camp supported the children of Pippin II's eldest son, Drogo, who were Hugo, Arnulf, Pippin, and Gottfried. The latter two were minors. The third and least powerful segment rallied behind Charles, or as we might pronounce it in English, Charles. Charles was an adult, unlike most of his rivals, but he was also Pippin's bastard son by a concubine rather than through his rightful wife, Pectrudis, which severely weakened his claim. At the outset of the power struggle, Plectrudus imprisoned Charles and put her grandson Theodorwald, in power. The Neustrian aristocracy took advantage of the succession crisis and revolted against their Austrasian overlords. They assembled an army and defeated Theodwald's forces near Compiègne. The Nuestrians then elected Ragumfred as mayor of the palace. He allied with the Frisians and their king, who had the greatest name of all time, Radbod. You'd think Radbod would be enough of an ally, but Ragumfried also secured the aid of the Aquitanian duke Eudo to fight the overly powerful Pippinids, and together they attacked their center of power at Metz. By this time, Charles had escaped his stepmother's captivity and organized the Austrasians. Dagobert III died, and the Neustrians chose a cleric named Daniel, allegedly son of Childeric II and made him king under the name Chilperic II, while Charles chose his own Merovingian, Clothar IV, to be his figurehead. Charles met Ragumfried and Radbod's forces in northern Austrasia, where he was defeated and forced to flee into the mountains of Eiffel. With Charles on the run, the Neustrians besieged Cologne and seized much of the Austrasian treasury. Ragumfried marched his forces back towards Paris, laden down with booty, when Charles' army ambushed them at Omblev. The Austrasians smashed Ragumfried’s forces, and Charles marched into Neustria. For five years, he moved from city to city, establishing his control over it and Burgundy. Then he subjugated the Frisians, Alamanni, and Thuringians. Meanwhile, Provence was racked by feuds between nobles, weakening the region. In the 720s to 730s, the Prince Morontus invited the Muslims of the recently conquered Septimania to help fight Charles, but the Muslims used the opportunity to invade Provence. Charles leapt upon the opportunity to depict himself as the savior of Christianity and liberator of Provence against foreign invaders, and he marched southward. He conquered the territory, put an ally in power, and seized land from those he considered traitors. Said ally had no heirs, and when he died, Charles' sons seized his vast estates. Charles proved just as capable at bureaucracy as he was at war. Charles couldn't dominate royal courts where the Merovingians could rally opposing nobles, so instead he used the church. Between 700 and 730, the Episcopal Lordship changed radically. Bishop's power used to derive from their control of sacred places, holy objects, wealth, and family connections. Under Charles, Bishop's power came exclusively from secular administration of one or more dioceses the new church would be ruled over by his kinsmen and allies who largely ignored the church's religious or secular education aims, local cultural traditions, and the niceties of episcopal consecration and election. Charles exploited this, and his cousin Hugo was bishop of Paris, Rouen, Bayou, and possibly Lisieux, Avranches, and Evreux while holding the offices of Abbot in Saint-Wandry, Saint-Denis, and Jumege. This type of pluralism became increasingly common as Charles put his family and loyalists in charge of virtually every important office. Bishops needed the mayor of the palace's approval to hold their positions, that is until Charles' son Pepin the Short made himself king, at which point they needed the king's approval, meaning that Charles and his successors could appoint their own men directly to positions of power. Part of this change occurred due to evolution within the church itself, as in the 7th to 8th centuries, Anglo-Saxon missionaries replaced Irish missionaries as the most important foreign proselytizers in Francia. The Anglo-Saxons were very different from the Irish, who had decentralized monasteries, and the Franks, who had their own local church traditions. First, the Anglo-Saxons had an Episcopal hierarchy set up by papal agents sent from the Vatican. Second, the Anglo-Saxon Church regularly worked with the Anglo-Saxon kings. Finally, they were strict Benedictines with a set hierarchy. All this meant that they were skilled bureaucrats who served at the pleasure of the Pope and King rather than their local communities or church. Conquest of foreign land and church administration went hand in hand as Charles used the new church to administer his lands. Missionaries from Britain, working with the papacy, organized administrative political units in Thuringia and Alemania so that when Charles conquered them, he could easily put his own men in positions of power. There were some negative side effects to Charles' reformation of the church. The focus on secular administration rather than education, possibly led to a decline in letter-writing and literacy. After Hugo's death, his successors at Rouen and Saint-Wendry were illiterate. Meanwhile, Aquitaine and Provence were ravaged in the wars of pacification, and their education facilities declined. Moreover, since the church was an organ of the king's secular power, it was less attentive to the spiritual needs of its people. These changes had a significant negative impact on Francia, but in the short term, the church allowed Charles to consolidate his rule into a more concerted, loyal, and rational system than the Merovingians had done. By the late 710s, Charles defeated Plectrudus and the other Frankish rival claimants to power. He even let Ragumfried and his brothers live, an uncharacteristically benevolent action given the time though he did probably kill Arnulf and either Gottfried or Pippin when they tried to rebel against him. Through martial brilliance, deft politicking, and the strong support of the church, Charles became the undisputed master of Francia and felt secure enough to replace Clothar IV with the more legitimate Theodoric IV as his puppet king of a united kingdom. Only one area remained outside Charles' rule. Aquitaine. For a long time Aquitaine had been an autonomous region so its leaders could have a free hand in fighting the Bosques. In that time Aquitaine became one of the richest areas of Francia with important trade routes with Hispania and the Bosques. When the Pippinid civil war broke out in the early 8th century Duke Eudo simply ended the pretense of subservience that Aquitaine had held and refused to admit that the ruler of Francia was its lord. So far, I have almost exclusively talked about events in Francia, since this powerful kingdom was, for the most part, the master of its own destiny. But the entire eastern hemisphere was then undergoing a momentous change, which directly affected Francia's southern border. In 711, an Arab-Muslim force first attacked the Visigothic kingdom of Hispania. By 714, the Visigothic kingdom was collapsing. Only Septimania remained outside the control of the Islamic armies. At first, Eudo benefited from the relative weakness of his southern rivals. Then, in 719, Muslim armies conquered Septimania, ending the Visigothic rump state and creating their own province. The new rulers of Hispania were emboldened by continual success and in 721 they sent an army which besieged Toulouse. Eudo crushed the invaders with the help of his Basque allies and even received praise from Pope Gregory II as a defender of the Christian faith. Eudo's initial success halted the northern Islamic advance, and soon Muslim leaders began infighting. Iudo was surrounded by enemies on all sides, and in 730 married his daughter to the Berber commander of the province of Sardanya, Uthman ibn Naisa, who was then in rebellion against the Umayyad caliphate. These two nobles hoped to carve out a territory for themselves amidst the greater powers, but both Charles and the Umayyads refused to let them secede. Charles had just quelled a Saxon uprising when he heard about the marriage, which he condemned as unchristian, though he was probably more concerned that the renegade duke was making powerful allies. In 731, Charles amassed his forces and invaded Aquitaine, winning numerous victories. Meanwhile, Uthman ibn Naisa was defeated and executed by the governor of the new Islamic territory of al-Andalus, Abd al Rahman ibn Abd Allah al Ghafiqi. Next, Abd al Rahman amassed a large army with forces from as far away as the Levant and Yemen and marched north to Bordeaux. The Muslim army met Eudo and his forces in open combat and utterly smashed them before sacking Bordeaux. With no other choice, Eudo called upon Charles the Duke of Aquitaine and the Duke of Francia combined their forces and met the large Islamic army somewhere between Poitiers and Tours. On the 10th of October, 732, at the Battle of Poitiers, often called the Battle of Tours in English sources, Charles and Eudo decisively defeated the southern invaders, even killing their leader Abd al-Rahman. And in case you're wondering, I will have more to say about this battle in a future episode, but for now we're talking about the fall of the Merovingians and the rise of the Carolingians. Charles' victory gave him a reputation as a hero of the Christian faith, and he gained the nickname Martel, the hammer. Charles spent the next five years of his reign campaigning against the Muslims in Septimania and Provence with limited success while putting down revolts across the kingdom. In 737, Theodoric IV died, and Charles decided to break precedent and rule without a king. For six years, Francia was without a monarch, and Charles continued consolidating his rule through the church, which increasingly relied on the Franks. By the early 8th century, the Byzantine Empire was crippled by wars against Sassanid Persia, civil wars, and ultimately Islamic invasion and the Franks were the only power that could defend papal independence from invaders. In 739, Pope Gregory III directly appealed to Charles to help defend papal independence from the Langobards and sent him a key to the tomb of St. Peter. Thus began a long relationship between the popes, Charles Martel, and his successors known as the Carolingians. As the papacy relied on the Carolingians, they sent numerous relics from Rome, which gave spiritual power directly to Charles and his descendants. In Merovingian Francia, relics were connected to holy places and administered by an independent church, but now holiness came from Rome through the Carolingians, who secured Francia's connection to sacred artifacts. The Carolingian control of the church was so complete that by 742, Charles' son and successor, Carloman, could call a council of bishops who concluded their synods in his name rather than theirs or the Pope's. Charles' remarkable life ended on the 22nd of October, 741, when he died just north of Paris at the age of 52 or 53. He was buried in Saint-Denis, just north of Paris proper, where he remains today. Upon his death, his two sons, by his first marriage, Carloman and Pepin, ruled as co-mayors of Francia. But another son, Grifo, born from Charles' second wife, demanded he be given part of Francia. His half-brothers refused and forced him into a monastery at Leon. In 743, the two brothers wanted to further legitimize their rule and invited Childeric III to be king of Francia, Who would become the last Merovingian king? In 747, Grifo escaped and, with the help of his great uncle, led a rebellion in Bavaria. At nearly the same time, Carloman abandoned his political life and traveled to Rome, where Pope Zachary ordained him in the church. With his older brother preaching the love of Christ and his half brother raising hell in Bavaria, Pepin became the single most powerful person in Francia. He invaded Bavaria and put his own puppet on the throne, though Grifo continued giving him grief, oh, for the next six years until he was killed in 753. But before he killed his half-brother, in 751, Pepin was ready to make history. He sent a letter to the Pope asking, In regard to the kings of the Franks, who no longer possess the royal power, is this state of things proper? at which point Zachary replied that it was not. Pepin had Childeric III's long hair cut, removing his right to rule, and then placed him in a monastery. Pepin then asked his nobles if they would support his claim to kingship, and since they didn't want to be stabbed, they all agreed it was a great idea. In 751 at Soissons, the nobles and Pepin's army attended a ceremony wherein Pepin was declared King of the Franks, the first Carolingian on the throne. Thus ended one dynasty which had ruled for 242 years. In its place, Pepin inherited from his father a massive kingdom, a more rational system of political control through the church, and a strong relationship with the papacy, which provided spiritual authority directly to the king of the Franks. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. One final note on Radbod, since he has too awesome a name to let go. During the seven tens, Duke Radbod was entertaining an Anglo Saxon missionary named Willibrod and learning Christianity from him. He was nearing the point of baptism when he asked Willibrod if his ancestors were in hell for being pagan. Willibrod replied yes. Radbod then refused to be baptized since he didn't want to spend eternity without his family. Absolute legend. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.